MSW Media. So, Asha, it looks like Fulton County DA Fannie Willis is starting to close in on Trump. How strong is her case? Uh, it's complicated. I'm Renata Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal and national security analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down into a soundbite or a tweet. So, Asha, it really seems like an indictment is close in the Fulton County case. The special grand jury ended their investigation. Um, Every public statement I've seen from Fannie Willis seems like she's just very determined to indict Trump. I really think that's where this is going. What about you? I think so. I mean, she has subpoenaed a ton of witnesses, including some you know, pretty high up names, Rudy Giuliani, Jenna Ellis, uh, even Lindsey Graham uh, was forced to come in and testify. So, you know, I I think that you might be right. Um, I was actually asked on uh, Katie Fang's show last week whether I thought which of the cases were going to move first. I had said Mar-a-Lago. I didn't think that Funny Willis was this close, but you know, if the if the special grand jury and I think just to for our listeners, the special grand jury did not have the capacity to issue an indictment. She would have to go to a regular grand jury, I take it, to and then present her evidence and get that indictment. Yeah, what that looks like, just so uh, our listeners understand, is essentially um, uh, the investigators will be brought into the grand jury as witnesses, and then they will tr- read the transcripts. It's not as dramatic as you might think. It's not like reading, uh, you know, reading a, a, a you know, sh- whatever, Shakespeare uh, play or something, but it's just reading that evidence into the grand jury. I view it as a formality, and the question is, just, you know, how long does that take? Does it take a week or two, you know, for them to, you know, read all those transcripts in? Maybe it takes a third week, but it's it's something that, is not going to slow them down very much. So I would consider more of a formality than anything. Okay. And just let's set this up because I think, uh, you know, you and I often agree on things, but I think today we'll have a little bit of a back and forth because you have long been a skeptic of the Georgia case. And mm-hmm. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but let me try to remember, summarize, I think, the, the main thrust of your arguments. Like, first, I think you've had questions about the sufficiency of the evidence Uh-oh. because um, the the sort of the smoking gun, quote unquote, has been the phone call to Brad Raffensperger. And you don't you don't believe that, legally speaking, that's enough. And then second... I think you have had questions about the resources that are available to Fannie Willis compared to the feds. Um, and then third, and I don't know if this really gets to the strength of the case, but I think you have questioned maybe the perception of an indictment by Fannie Willis because she's an elected prosecutor 
uh, and maybe it appears more politically motivated or that she has other incentives to bring this case, even if the strength of the evidence is not um, enough to secure a conviction. Would that Are those fair summaries? Um, what I would say on the last point, I mean, it's, it's, I think the point is that it opens up an argument for the defense mm. at trial. I mean, if I was representing Trump, which I'm not, and I never will, I always get comments whenever I say that, like, don't, you know, don't, don't, don't represent him as if I'm, as if, as if either of us would want that to occur. Um, but, uh, if I was, uh, that would be like a feature, a, a feature of my defense. If I was Trump, uh, representing him would be. You know, she's an elected prosecutor. She's trying to get reelected at Fulton County. Trump's unpopular there. So, of course, she's going after this, and it's all political play. He did the same thing, by the way, with yeah. Leticia James. It, you know, I don't think that's going to work, um, but there's something to it in both cases, I would say. I'm not, and I, and I, um, I also uh, am aggressive, uh, you know, would be aggressive going after Trump if I was in their shoes. I, I will you know, know what I campaigned for attorney general in Illinois on a platform of investigating Trump. I mean, that was part of my platform. So I'm not against that. But I I just think if I'm giving you sober, uh, neutral, rational analysis, I, I do think that that makes makes things a little bit harder. Than yeah, I would say a distinction between Letitia James and Fannie Willis, though, is Letitia James did explicitly campaign on bringing Trump to justice, which I think creates certainly a perception of some type of targeted, you know, prosecution or selective enforcement. I, to my knowledge, I'm not aware that Vonnie Willis has done that. Um, not that there still isn't, like, he wouldn't still make the argument, but I think that the case of bias is stronger in Letitia James' case. I think that's right. I mean, it's more of an argument, um, but, you know, in a courtroom, how, you know, it, it'll come off similar in a similar way. I, I will say, you know, the reason I've been so convinced for a while that Fonnie Willis is going to go forward and do this is just every public statement she makes, like she, she's definitely gives the impression to me that she's chomping at the bit to indict Trump. I don't see a lot of, you know, um, careful consideration there where she's like, you know, not, you know, seems unsure. And I think that if if you're just being very sober about this case, I think it's, you know, it's a roll of the dice or a coin flip. And so I think a prosecutor who is less motivated would be very concerned about taking on this case because the there's a chance you could lose. And that would, I think, um, you know, have potential downsides. Yeah. While we're on the subject of Trump's potential defenses, um, and I know we're kind of going at this backwards because we haven't talked about the case, <laughs> but what about the potential defense? And I've heard other legal analysts, I won't I won't use their names, um, say that, you know, Trump could assert that he has immunity because his actions happened when he was president. I think this is a non-starter. Um, for two reasons, because, you know, there's no, to the extent that he even has, quote, he had, quote, unquote, immunity from prosecution from the federal government as a sitting president, that's largely because of policy, not due to any actual constitutional reason. And so I think that in the absence of such a policy and the fact that a state is a separate sovereign, um, you know, I don't think that there's any bar there. And then on top of that, he was not even acting in his 
official capacity as president, as several courts have found, you know, he was acting in his private capacity on behalf of his campaign. So I, I think that that argument is a non-starter. Yeah, so I'm not, I, I will say, I don't think that's his best defense or best argument. You know, I think one thing that's always a challenge with this legal analysis stuff is predicting what will happen versus what should happen. So I think this is very likely the sort of thing he's going to say uh, as a defense. I just don't think it's the strongest one. I mean, if it wouldn't be my choice if I was the one making the arguments, but I'm not. And, it, you know, he's the one driving the bus, I think, in his legal defense anyway, uh, even if he had the best lawyers in the world. So um, I, I, I agree with you. I don't think it's a strong argument. I think the most I would say about this particular point is just that um, – Trump, you know, whether he was acting in his official capacity or not, was the president of the United States. And I think that it will give it will definitely give um, more weight to his like First Amendment arguments and some uh, and just the general, I think, atmospherics that, hey, I was the president of the United States and I'm talking to a state election official about my election. Um, We need to be very careful about criminalizing that. Because, uh, you know, the, you, you don't want to have a situation where the speech of the president of the United States is chilled or, you know, he, he, you know his options are constrained by state criminal law. And I think there's something to that, but I, it's nothing close to the sort of full-throated, you know, immunity defense that I expect Trump to assert. And I agree with you as kind of – And my – I just to be devil's advocate, I would say we also don't – we want to create – disincentives for a president who's a very powerful person to use his or her power or influence to essentially bully state employees. I agree with that. I would think on the counter uh, <laughs> point, since we're, we're on different sides of it, we also want to create disincentives from rando uh, local DAs to um, bring criminal cases against the president for uh, you know random phone calls. So we have to be very careful about this uh, because otherwise you're going to see you know some random D, you know DA in Waco, Texas suddenly decide they want that, to prosecute Joe, know, Biden. Joe Biden. Right. Yeah, I mean we're going to just see this all over the place. So we have to you know we have to be very con- concerned about potential you know, weaponization of local, there's a lot of local prosecutors in the United States. So, you know, if you put them all on a spectrum, you could think about the the craziest, most aggressive one out there. Um, do we really want to um, open the door for that? So I think, I do think it's complicated. Uh, and I think there's something to that, but it's not anything close to immunity defense. So let's get to the sufficiency of the evidence, which kind of gets to, I think his final or kind of other main defense, but this kind of gets to the strength of the case, is Trump says, look, I believed I had won. I had genuine belief that there were suitcases of ballots that had been hauled off and were hiding somewhere. And what I wanted the Secretary of State to do was to do his job, because that, you know, I believe that there were votes that hadn't been counted. Um, And I think that for you, I think you've said before that, you know, standing alone, you know, that's a plausible argument to make, at least in terms of reasonable doubt, for his phone call to the Secretary of State to find 11,870 votes. Yeah, I mean, the way I would put it is, 
in order to convict him, right? Put like we can talk about the realities of it. We could uh, later in terms of how this would actually play out in a courtroom and how I'd assess it as a trial lawyer. But in, as a just looking at it straight in terms of what the burden of proof is, you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he had the intent to defraud. And I don't think anybody can be confident beyond a reasonable doubt what the heck was in that guy's mind as he made that conversation. If you really went through the transcript, the entire transcript, not the tiny portions that keep getting played over and over again on, on cable news, but like the whole transcript, you could find lots of stuff in there that might give you doubt that like maybe he just heard a bunch of stuff on the Internet and was wish casting about what he hoped was the case. Uh, but, you know, what you know, because a lot of it is couched in terms of investigating fraud, even the quote threat against Raffensperger is basically like. If you're not investigating fraud, I'm going to let the Justice Department know that you're not looking into fraud, essentially. Um, and so I just think it's complicated. It's a hard I think it's a hard thing to for a jury that the typical proof beyond a reasonable doubt in a fraud case are people really talking about, yeah, let's let's fool these people like, ha ha ha, we're getting all their money, like stuff that's very straightforward. And this is a word salad. It's complicated. What about the voluminous evidence that the January 6th committee has produced? that in advance of this phone call being made, that Trump was repeatedly told that these claims were false. Um, in other words, that he was disabused of this notion and in fact continued to repeat them, you know, even outside of the Raffensperger call, was re repeating these claims almost immediately after he had been told that they were false. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that you've hit on what I think is the strongest argument for Fannie Willis. I think I think that's you're right about that. And if our listeners are interested in sort of kind of a long, you know, written out argument, the Brookings Institute put out or the Brookings Institution put out like a 300 page report in which they set out that argument in a lot of detail. But essentially, yes, if you go through and say, look, there was this calculated plan and this fits as part of a broader picture, they were going to declare victory. Um, even before the election, they said they were going to declare victory and all of that stuff we heard from the January 6th committee. I think that helps a lot. It adds a lot of context to that conversation. Is it enough to prove beyond a reasonable doubt? Um, I don't know. Um, if I, I'll, I'll put it this way as somebody who does this for a living. If I represented the defendant here, I would say we're absolutely going to trial. There's no way that I would plead guilty here. I think we have a very good argument at trial, and I think we can roll the dice and win uh, at this one. If I was a prosecutor, and I, or I'd say I was the supervisor here, they're like, okay, here's my indictment. Do you approve it? I'd say, wow. Well, this is like a what I'll call an argument case, and what I mean by what, what what I mean by an argument case is there's a bunch of documents and evidence, and you can argue them two different ways, and it's like whoever's better does the better has the better argument wins. Um, usually, um, you can't you do bring those sometimes in fraud cases, but usually do it uh, sparingly and in rare cases, and it's you know it's really a judgment call as to whether you would do that for the former president and and all of that. And I just, I guess my, you know, my my take here in terms of assessing the litigation risk is it really comes down to the jury. And I just think as a practical matter, Fulton County jury might be biased against Trump no matter what. Like if they just choose the jury pool, a jury pool or depending on the jury pool, if the jury is chosen poorly by the Trump team, he could be doomed from the start because the jury is just very inclined to believe this. 
On the other hand, you could have a situation where you could have a jury that's just absolutely unwilling to unanimously convict. Um, and, and I just, I, I do think it's it's something where uh, different people are going to look at this very differently. So, in terms of the sufficiency of the evidence, the other, the third piece. So we have the phone call. We have some of this backdrop that we've since the phone call has been released by the January sixth committee about all of these other things that were going on um, leading up to the phone call. Um, and then there's sort of a wild card in terms of we don't exactly know what she's gotten from the testimony of many people in Trump's orbit whom she successfully subpoenaed to testify. Uh, these include people like Rudy Giuliani and Jenna Ellis, who were part of the other prong to convince legislators, including Georgia legislators, to uh, create a new slate of electors and, you know, basically call the out- call the outcome um, in that state into question. Um, Lindsey Graham had to testify despite uh be you know him fighting it um even Brad Raffensperger <laughs> went in and and testified so how what what how much could that wild card again we don't know what these people said they might have taken the fifth for everything um but how much of a game changer could that be in terms of your assessment like what would they need to get from those people yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I do think it's really important to highlight, Ash. I think you make an excellent point because there's definitely an element here of what th- that we don't know um, because the January 6th committee was less successful because they're not criminal. Uh, they weren't criminal investigators in in getting these folks to talk talk to them. Um, I, I, if if I had to say what I think it will, what I think they got, my gut, my gut is that it's very limited because, as you suggest, as you kind of hinted at. Um, the people who don't like Fannie Willis and are trying to help Trump are going to either take the fifth or have very foggy memories or th- things along those lines. However, that can be really important for a prosecutor because it can lock out certain defenses. In other words, if let's just say no one came in and testified. All that is known and all that's locked in is what's publicly available. If I was the Trump defense uh, guru, I would be like, okay, let's line up all of these witnesses to come in and say all sorts of things that are very helpful to our case. We'll have like a defense theme and we'll bring in, you know, Giuliani's going to come in and say this and Lindsey Grant's going to come in and say that. And everyone, we're going to have like a whole story that we're going to lay out for the jury that's going to mirror our defense story. And by doing what they did, they kind of locked all these people into saying, I don't remember, I don't know. But then that means that they're not going to be able to come in a few months later into a trial and say, oh, yeah, I have this amazing memory. And my memory is that Trump told me at the time that he, you know, legitimately believed X, Y, Z or whatever. So I do think there's a lot of value there. Um, And it's more about protecting their downside. So I I think it was worth doing. I, I think it's possible that there was also some nuggets, like somebody, you know, because the, you're dealing with some real wild cards. So God knows uh, what Rudy Giuliani said. But my, my gut is that, you know, it was more about protecting the downside than building something uh, in terms of affirmative evidence. Yeah. Um, now let's look at some of the potential charges, because uh, I'm curious about your take on that. So first, there's a bunch of, and this is from the Brookings Institution report, um, 
So first, there's a whole suite of election crimes, specifically under Georgia law. Uh, Solicitation to commit election fraud, intentional interference with performance of election duties, interference with primaries and elections, conspiracy to commit election fraud. Um, And let's see. And then there's a suite. Then there's a bunch of other non-election related crimes, improperly influencing government officials, forgery in the first degree, um, and criminal solicitation. So um, what what do you think? Is it going to be the whole enchilada? Um, and I haven't even gotten to the, uh, let me, why don't I just mention this and we'll get to that separately though. There's also um, Georgia's Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, RICO, which seems like it's a bit different than the federal RICO statute, but let's, we'll get to that a little bit um, later. In terms of the individual offenses, and we're talking about Trump specifically, um, what is what is your sense having looked at it? So there's often a debate amongst prosecutors and whether you want to have a, a, a narrowly tailored indictment where you like pick your one or two best crimes and you charge those. <clears throat> you want your, your two best charges or one best charge. You have a very narrowly focused indictment versus throwing the kitchen sink at a defendant and charging everything. I'm usually in the former camp um, and I suspect there's a debate right now um, that within the Fulton County DA about where to go. In fact, I've heard something along those lines that there's a debate right now. And so um, if you're if you have a narrow indictment and you bring your bet your best charges, you know, and you don't bring all this other stuff, it allows you to have a very focused presentation at trial. And you can just say, here's what he did. This is the crime. And you can have a very kind of tight story. If you charge everything under the sun, you have this like sprawling multi-week presentation at trial. The the value of that is that it can make the put the defense in a situation where they're trying to have a, a defense story that hits everything and tries to contradict everything at once. And sometimes it can create a tension in their story because they have to sort of say multiple different things that don't don't always correspond to each other. So it's definitely fact dependent. I guess my view is a number of those crimes boil down to because I was looking at the same report and I was you know reading some uh, some case law about the the elements. It seems to me like a lot of those come down to like fraud or false statements. A lot of those come down to the intense stuff that we're talking about earlier. I'm the least excited about some of that, but I do think they're going to ultimately bring some of those charges. The ones that I think are strongest are the false statement type case uh, type. uh, charges because it's just, hey, you, you're basically the proof is, hey, you were trying to get them to make a false statement. And the question is just purely, did Trump think it was false or not? I mean, that's what it's, it's that's still what it's that's still ultimately when it's going to come down to. I think it's it's easier. Rico, I will just say, as uh, and I'm not familiar with the Georgia Rico statute other than some blurbs that I've read. But I'll just say from the perspective of a prosecutor who often had to consider bringing federal Rico charges. They're they're very rarely brought by federal prosecutors for a reason, and they're extraordinary. And that's that they're extraordinarily complicated to prove. Uh, Rico, while people like to talk about it on Twitter or the internet, um, it's you have to prove there's a criminal ongoing criminal enterprise, and there's these predicate crimes you have to prove up, like underlying crimes, and then there's some criminal enterprise that's engaging in those, and like they're particularly hard in my view to bring when. 
the underlying activity is not something that we usually think of as a criminal enterprise. Like usually Rico, you consider in gang cases, organized crime cases, um, because that's the idea. That's sort of the idea behind the statute. When you start calling like random groups of people, um, uh, you know, this is this criminal enterprise. I think it's complicated <laughs> um, because and it creates a defense argument. And if I was the, on the defense here, I'd be like, look, Donald Trump may be a lot of things, but he's not like a criminal, you know, head of a criminal enterprise and a part of, you know, this is not a racketeering scheme. It's a phone call. Now, I appreciate that there's a lot of our listeners who are going to have comments on our YouTube channel or whatever saying or tweeting at us being like, yes, he is part of a criminal racketeering enterprise. But the, the point is, you have to get 12 people to unanimously agree to that and what that looks like. And I just think, why take that on when you don't have yeah, to? Yeah, that... That was my question, is what would be the criminal enterprise? I assume it would be the campaign or something is what they would have to allege. And that seems really odd because, like you said, you know, RICO is typically intended for things like organized crime where the uh, organizational entity exists for the purpose of perpetuating criminal activity, like for money laundering or something like that, Um that's my understanding. And, you know, as bad as we think some of the activities that the campaign engaged in, it's still a presidential campaign. Yeah, it's really odd. And but it has happened. I'll just to flag it. Uh, R. Kelly was charged in the Eastern District of New York with a racketeering conspiracy, you know, for his abuse of of children. <clears throat> but in the but it was an odd it was definitely an odd charge. And it was essentially saying like him and his group of folks who were, you know, round, basically rounding up girls after his concerts and so forth were, um, you know, was a racketeering conspiracy. I do think a better defense team would have been able to make more of that. It was done by the Eastern District of New York because they didn't have venue. They were prosecuting crimes that occurred in Minnesota and California and Illinois uh, in New York. And so they had to find a way of bringing all that there. That's why they did it. I There was a recent case where um, prosec federal prosecutors said that a bunch of people who were at a trading desk were engaged in a RICO conspiracy for like manipulating the market. And they lost on that charge and, and won on others because it's so weird. It's a bunch of dudes that from like JP Morgan or something <laughs> had nothing to do with uh, They're not racket. It was just very hard for the jury to get their head around that. So prosecutors sometimes come up with these ideas, like let's throw RICO at it. And it's usually, it's, it's usually unsuccessful. And you, you know, it's one thing if you have to do it for venue or something, but like, why you would take that on, I don't know. I, what I have heard is that, you know, some of the reason that people are saying that RICO and those sort of things are being considered is because um, there's this idea like it's the former president. You have to have weighty charges. We can't just charge him on false statement or on this small, small potato stuff. And, and I, I just I don't think that that's a proper. Yeah, consideration. you're making me remember that, you know, do you remember the college admission scandal? Uh, yeah, that was a RICO. Oh, case. yeah, of course. <laughs> Operation Varsity sure. Blues. Uh, you know, I, I yeah, and and they mm -hmm. did a, they got a lot of convictions, so kudos to them for that. I just I, I just think that I, I'm very I'm very uh, anti Rico statute as a from a prosecutorial standpoint. If I was if I was the head of the Fulton County office, I'd be like, let's let's make our case really simple. Jurors have enough trouble understanding this stuff as is. Like, let's not introduce like criminal enterprise into this. Well, let's be watching for what the Fulton County comes up with. Indeed. 
Hi, I'm Moji Alawodeal from the Feminist Buzzkills Live Pod, the only podcast that helps you navigate the news in this post-pro anti-abortion hellscape. Each week with co-hosts Marie Khan and Liz Winstead, we dissect all the news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with providers and activists working on the ground. The cherry on top is we have amazing comedy guests who help us laugh through the rage. Feminist Buzzkills Live drops Fridays wherever you pod. Listen and subscribe, because when BS is popping, we pop off. So, Asha, um, what do you make of all of these uh, followers of Bolsonaro uh, marching into the uh, the Capitol and other buildings in Brazil? I mean, that, that seemed oddly familiar, and it was on January 8th. Uh, of all things, very close to January Yes. 6th. You know, we talk about things like copycat murders, and this looks like a copycat coup um, or a copycat attempted coup. I was doing a little reading about it. Um, and in fact, it seems as though Bolsonaro was really playing from the pl- same playbook um, leading up to his presidential runoff election uh, with Lula. Um He was sowing doubt about the integrity of Brazil's electronic voting process, so sort of laying the seeds that it was going to be rigged or illegitimate. Um, There was social media uh, narratives being promoted, um, you know, encouraging people to take up arms uh, that, you know, this was voter fraud, that um, this was an illegitimate election. Um, And in fact, uh, I was reading in Foreign Policy magazine that Bolsonaro's son had actually met with Trump and Trump's aide, Jason Miller, um, before that runoff election took place. So, I mean, you know, there is sort of a direct contact. Um, And I think it kind of points to and and, and the, the article, by the way, said that it was intended that for this coup to set off sort of a domino effect of more of these happening around the world. And, you know, I think we have to think about what, first of all, what happens in the United States as being really important. You know, history has its eyes on us. And when people see something happen in, you know, what should be the most powerful democracy in the world, they are, you know, say, well, then we can do it here in a place that has a more fragile democracy. Um, But I also think it gets to this sort of interconnected network of these sort of authoritarian and quasi-authoritarian regimes around the world who, you know, are kind of playing from the same playbook and supporting each other. Um, And I think to me, it precisely because history has its eyes on us, I think it's more important than ever that... The perpetrators of the coup attempt, including uh, here, uh, including Trump, face some sort of accountability because it will really be a green light, I think, around the world if even the United States, which, you know, the Department of Justice is the jewel in the crown of, you know, our democracy and rule of law. If if we can't do it, then it certainly seems like it will be hard for others. I should note, by the way, that... Um, Brazil wasted no time arresting these people. They arrested them within a couple of hours. Uh, Again, by the same playbook, Bolsonaro didn't say anything about it until several hours after. 
Um, and even then he didn't condemn them. Um, and it also appears that security forces in Brazil may have been complicit in allowing the attack to happen. Yeah, I'd seen that. I think it was it was sort of maybe the governor or the head of security for prop the province, Brasilia, the capital yeah. province. Yeah, was a supporter of Bolsonaro's, and so he was removed, yes. I think, uh -huh. from his job or replaced. Yeah, um, because their their response was inadequate. Although I will note that a lot they detained many many people on the Capitol mm -hmm. grounds um, or on the grounds of the various. Because I think there's multiple buildings that were assaulted. Um, but they, they retained many people in a way that we didn't. In, yeah. And, in you know, my question there is I suspect that most of the people that were on the grounds in Brazil were probably not armed. Um, and, you know, in the United States, we have that additional piece. And I, you know, at least for the law enforcement, Capitol Police who were at the Capitol at the time, you know, they had a real choice to make in terms of, you know, you could start arresting these people, but those people, so many of those people were ready to kill law enforcement. And even, you know, we can see from when, how they, you know, beat people, beat law enforcement officers, that that was a really tough um, call for them to make at that moment. Well, that's a fair point. I also think another issue is that, you know, while Bolsonaro um, took a while to condemn this, my understanding, and you tell me if I'm wrong, uh, Asha, because you may know if, you may know this. I don't think he's still in power at this time, right? And so Lula is Correct. already the president of Brazil. And a difference was that Donald Trump was the president of the United States on January 6th, uh, um, 2021. And so he wasn't going to, you know, Biden was not going to be inaugurated for some time. And so there was a lack of response in part because the Trump White House was not ordering a response. Here, there was a delay in terms of that province, but in the end of the day, the military was being ordered. And and I mean, I'm sure you may have seen some of the angry tweet. There's an angry tweet by like, the head of the judiciary of Brazil. It's like, we're going to hold everyone accountable. I mean, it's a different system that we have here. But the point is, I think that the government there was more firmly behind this. And I think it goes to the sort of lack of response that the Trump administration had, which was disgusting and, and really, I think, un indefensible. One thing I will just say to, to respond to your point about, you know, how this looks to the rest of the world, which I thought was dead on, um, you know, is that it, it? I've always thought the United States has been a country that's had an outsized influence around the world. And I think we're always proud of the fact we were exporting democracy, right? During the Cold War, that was how we held ourselves up. Were this country trying to export democracy? The Soviet Union was trying to export something other than that. And we were this beacon for the world. And that's how we've always been described, you know, on both parties, a shiny city on the hill. I mean, both parties, I think, have talked about that. And now what we're seeing is when the American president is an authoritarian and cultivates, Bolsonaro was a disciple of Trump's and was cultivated by Trump. Uh, what we're exporting is authoritarianism and um, coup attempts. And it is, um, I, I think it's something that uh, in the long run will, this is the sort of thing people will remember in history and have uh, write a lot of books about for decades to come, because it's, I think it's a turning point in our, our global Yeah, that's history. a really powerful take, Renato, that the United States is now exporting authoritarianism and coups. I mean, that's a pretty low point. And I think, again, to me, it underscores why we have to have accountability 
Um, I, you're you're right. Uh, President Lula was inaugurated on January first. Um, I believe that they had they had uh, disbanded several protests that had been taking place. So I don't know if there was an intention to try to prevent from being inaugurated that they thwarted and it was moved over or if it was intended to coincide with the anniversary of January 6th to some degree. Um, the other, by the way, parallel that I'll note is that these uh, attackers in Brazil had uh, surrounded the the Defense Department and had tried to encourage the military to join in, um, which, you know, was also like, I think, the hope of some people here. And, the, you know, the difference is, is that Brazil, like many countries in Latin America, actually has a history of, you know, military coups and military dictatorships. And um, I think it's, you know, a testament to how far their democracy has come to that, that, that didn't happen. Um, and also another parallel was that I think, um, at least I, I can't remember specifically who it might've been that head that got removed that you mentioned, but there are people who were placed into positions by the way, before Bolsonaro left, um, in this, you know, mm -hmm. which made reminded me of how Trump had placed people in like cash Patel in the D defense department. And, right. um, and, you know, look, it's, it's really interesting that there was just this sort of very classic playbook. Um, I am a big fan of the people who study authoritarianism. Um, Ruth Ben-Ghiat has a great book I recommend called Strongmen, um, where she just looks at these patterns <laughs> across the world. Um, and then there's a few shows. Uh, uh, PBS has one called um, The Dictator's Playbook. And Netflix has one called How to Become a Tyrant. And I would say they're all really illuminating. And we would see a lot of reflections in the Trump years in those. I always get good books for my reading list from you, Asha. Um, one thing I will just say uh, before we wrap this up uh, on this topic, I think that was very much a call out to January 6th in the United States. And it'll be interesting to see because one of the things that the Justice Department has said is that they're going to follow the money. They want to see mm -hmm. how this was being organized because there were free buses being offered to bring people to the Capitol. And that is an echo of what special counsel Jack Smith is doing. He just issued a subpoena to Rudy Giuliani to provide uh, information about um, funding sources. Uh, so I think the follow the money piece we haven't um, explored as much, but that might end up blowing a lot of things open in both countries. Definitely fodder for future episodes. So, Asha, I I saw on your Twitter feed uh, that you have very strong opinions about the about Harry and Meghan and what's going on. I will say that in my household, my wife is absolutely obsessed with the royals watch every episode of the crown i think you probably i think you have too um and i i don't i am not i don't get it but i i i told her and immediately she is like oh my god what's Sasha's take on the royals so what what's going on in in the in the world of the royals 
Yes. So I'm an Anglophile and I do, um, you know, I'm not, I'm actually not glued to the royal family. I'll definitely watch productions involving the royal family. So I've watched The Crown. Um, I, as I mentioned in the Substack piece that I wrote, um, I actually sat through uh, the Netflix screening of Diana the Musical, which is really, really bad. Um, but it's so bad that it's almost you have to watch it. Um, and listen to a podcast uh, about Diana. So, um, you know, I, I sort of follow it. I didn't know much about Meghan and Harry. And so when I watched their latest Netflix series, Harry and Meghan, you know, I kind of went into it uh, thinking it was going to be mainly just a fluff, another fluffy story about, you know, royal drama. And what was really interesting to me was that um, – they quickly unpack really this the information ecosystem that produces the tabloid coverage of the royal palace and the symbiotic relationship between the palace and these tabloids. And as someone who studies disinformation and propaganda and the media ecosystem, I found this really fascinating. And I actually then began to look at the series through the lens of a counter-propaganda operation. Um, and so um, I wrote a piece about that for my Substack, which was very popular um, and wow. generated um, more, actually more popular than any other piece that I've written for my Substack. So um, you should check it out. Well, what is, okay, be, be, maybe we need to explain this. What, so what is your Substack? What is that anyway? What so that um, a Substack is, uh, so Substack is basically a platform on which individual writers can create their own sort of magazine or newsletter um, where they produce content um, and they can choose whether to make it for free or paid subscriptions or some combination of both. Um, and so, uh, and it's all aggregated there. So I think the Substack name is like a stack of subscriptions. Mm, is what, yeah, which I didn't know until somebody explained that to me. But anyway, so that's what a Substack is. Uh, mine is called the Freedom Academy, and it is um, a Substack that is focused on uh, disinformation and propaganda. So I do things that look at you know current events through that lens, like Harry and Meghan. Um, I just did a piece it, like breaking down the components of the Hunter Biden laptop scandal. Um, and then that that's all free content. Uh, the paid part is an online course on. Um, disinformation and its impact on democracy. Wow. Wow, it's great. I'm going to have to, I guess I'm going to have to subscribe and get my wife to subscribe, although I will admit she is Team Kate and it, for, it has some in unnatural aversion to Harry and Meghan. And I don't understand why, because they seem like they seem perfectly like nice, people. nice people to me. <laughs> I know, I've gone through, they've gone through a lot from my perspective. So if she's listening to this, she's going to be very upset because she's, uh, I'm betraying the fact that uh, I'm not on her team. Uh, but I just can't get on the, the team. No, you don't have to. There were people who disagreed, but you know, really, it wasn't. It wasn't so much about them as how what they were doing in this series that I thought was very effective in countering a narrative, um, and that there were lessons that I thought we could learn for our own mm -hmm. media ecosystem. Yeah, I, I will say I've heard a lot of people talk about the broader implications of what's going on. For example, how Megan's been treated, certainly in the media. Some of the stuff I've seen, I've, I've 
been taken aback myself. So definitely a lot to learn there. And maybe it'll be something we'll discuss more in the future. Yeah. And if you want to check it out, it's asharangappa.substack.com. I will. <laughs>